All right, let's... um, I'm going to read to you from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Let's turn to our Bibles. Or you can look up at the screen if you didn't bring your Bible. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, if we read the whole chapter, you would see that this is the chapter that graphically portrays, presents to us the crucified Christ in the Old Testament. Isaiah penned these words some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And in Isaiah 53, the prophet gives us a picture of Christ who would come one day as their Messiah and be crucified. And as verse 12 says, he poured out his soul unto death He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Guess what? That's us. We are the transgressors that God made a sacrifice for and who he makes intercession for. So we've been talking about worship as our warfare. And so as we assemble together on the Lord's Day as one body, we assemble for worship. That's why we're here. We're here to worship. But we also assemble for war because our worship is warfare. Remember last week I read to you from Psalm 8, verse 2. And Psalm 8, verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants I have ordained strength to silence and still the avenger. So all these little babies crying and cooing and laughing and making noise, God says, I've ordained that those noises coming out of infants and nursing babes is warfare in the heavenlies to still the avenger. You don't know it. You don't understand it. But God says, that's what it is. That's what I've ordained it to be. So when you're tempted to think, man, I can't concentrate. That kid's crying. I want you to stop and want you to think what God says is taking place when that child is crying. He is conducting warfare in the heavenlies and he is stilling the avenger and the enemy. So our worship, our very act of worship is warfare. Our singing, our giving, our lifting our hands, our reciting the creed, you listening to this sermon, this is Worship, this is warfare. This is why we have assembled. And the Bible says that when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to the church. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So you're here to be equipped, to be prepared to go back out into the harvest, back out into the battlefield that is the world that we live in. And in this verse we just read from Isaiah 53:12, we see that Isaiah not only pictures for us the suffering savior crucified for our sins, but he pictures Christ's victory 
and the spoils of war. Christ spoiled his enemies through his victory in the cross. And now the spoils, that is the multitude of souls redeemed and the kingdoms of this earth have become his. They once were the enemies, but now they belong to Christ. Therefore, the cross is central to our worship and the cross is central to our warfare. Jesus has conquered victorious and our victory, your victory, is secure in him. Victory is not in question. The ultimate outcome is good going to win or is evil going to win. That, that is not in question. Christ has already won the victory. Your victory, my victory, the victory of every redeemed soul in the history of creation is secure in Jesus Christ. But, there's always a but in there, but there is still a battle that we fight. There is still a warfare that is raging. There is still a wrestling against a real spiritual enemy with real world consequences listen to what paul writes in ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13 finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand now, guess what you don't put on when you're going for a vacation at the beach? You don't put on your armor, naturally speaking. When do you put armor on? You put armor on when you're going to battle, when you're going to war. Paul writes here to the church. He wrote it to the church in Ephesus, but he wrote it for us, the church in Taylor. And he says, put on, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We put on armor as we prepare to go to battle. And Paul presents this picture that we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle. And our wrestling, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities, rulers of the darkness in heavenly and high places. When Paul wrote, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he did not mean that our warfare and its consequences are not tangible. They are tangible. They're real. We can touch them. We can feel them. We wrestle and we war against spiritual rulers and armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. And those spiritual rulers of darkness work through men held captive by sin and death to bring about destructive consequences in the earth that impact our daily lives. Murder, mass shootings, 
mayhem. Those are the results of the spiritual battle that is being waged every day against God and his kingdom. The good news, the news that we need to remember no matter how bad the news reported may be, the good news that we need to remember is that Christ has already won the victory. But what we cannot forget is that there is still a battle raging. And the consequences of that ongoing spiritual battle are real and they can be seen around us everywhere. It's seen in every affliction of man. It's seen in sickness and disease. It's seen in abortion and addiction. It's seen in excessive greed to incessant poverty. It's seen in the endless lust for power and control. It's seen in all of the corruption that is in the world through lust. It's seen and felt in the lusts and the desires within ourselves that tempt us to lead selfish, self-centered, sinful lives that are contrary to Christ in the ways of God. The consequences of this spiritual war are most vividly seen and felt, though, in death. Death that is present all around us. It doesn't matter if it's the death of a loved one who's lived a long and blessed life and you expect that they are going to die or if it's sudden death like the 17 students that were killed in that mass shooting who went to school that morning their parents sent them to school never dreaming that those children would not come home death is the most vivid the most horrible reminder that this warfare is still going on the bible says we walk in the flesh but we do not war according to the flesh kingdom life and kingdom warfare are not like that of the world god assembles armies and i promise you they don't look anything like the armies that the world would assemble Listen to what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now I want to point out something there. What is Paul describing? Where does our warfare take place? This is really important. This is why you should not go to bed at night fearful that some boogeyman is going to jump out of the dark and attack you. Because that's not how the enemy works. He may want you to think that's how he works. He may, he may want you to think, and no doubt he wants you to have irrational fears, while all the time he's subtly and silently and secretly working in the real way that he brings about his destruction. It's through deception. Now look what Paul points out here. He says, We walk in the flesh, but we do not conduct warfare according to the flesh. So what does that tell us right there? There's a warfare that's being conducted. 
And, and we're not fighting this battle in our flesh. We're fighting it how? In the spirit. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. These are spiritual weapons. This is a spiritual warfare. And where does this warfare take place? Pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments. Every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity. Strongholds, arguments, knowledge, thoughts. Where do those occur? In our mind. Where does every action begin? It begins in our mind. That young man who committed that mass murder, that mass murder began in his mind. And he allowed that to be born. And that birth of that imagination resulted in death. This is what Paul is saying. These things, the battlefield is in our mind. This is where we wage war because this is where the enemy attacks you. Does he want you to act physically? Yes, he does. Does he want you to go off and live a life of sin and, and live a life contrary to, to God and God's ways? Yes, he does. And he wants that life to ultimately end in your destruction. But it doesn't begin there. It begins here. And Paul is saying, this is where we wage our war. And God has given us spiritual weaponry that are mighty in him to pull down these strongholds, to cast down these arguments, to cast down these things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. He has given us the power, the ability to arrest our thoughts, incarcerate them, and make them obey Christ. You have that ability in Jesus Christ. So we walk through this world in natural bodies of flesh, but we do not war according to our flesh. We war in the spirit against spiritual enemies, against spiritual deception. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're spiritual and they are mighty through God. Matthew 16, verse 18 and 19. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're the prophet. Jesus said, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up. He said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And here is the response of Jesus to Peter and to the church in Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And I, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, that's what Peter means, by the way, Petros means rock. And I say to you, you are Peter, he was Simon Barjona, but Jesus said, now your name's Peter. You're not Simon anymore. Now you're rock. You're a little rock, but you're a rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth 
will be loosed in heaven. If I give to you a key to my house, what am I giving you? If I said, here's a key to my house, I'm giving you authority to go into my house. Otherwise, why would I give you a key to my house, right? If I give you a key to my car and said, here, if you need it, here's the key. What am I doing? I'm giving you authority to use my car. Jesus is saying to the church, I'm giving you authority. He's saying to his disciples, and he's saying to all of us, I am giving you authority. But what is Jesus doing? Well, he says, I am building my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we see Jesus presenting a picture of stationary gates because that's what gates are. Gates are stationary. Now your gate swings open and closed, but the gate post and the gate doesn't move from its fixed location. So this is, when we read the Bible, we need to, we need to think about what we're reading. Easy to pass over this. The gates of hell shall not prevail. And we think of the enemy as this thing that's, that's advancing, attacking us, coming against us. And he does that. But the picture Jesus presents here is that it is the church that is to be advancing. It is the church that is storming stationary gates. And those stationary gates will not prevail against the church. The church is God's advancing army. The promise of Christ is that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. They will oppose the church. They will stand against the church, but they will not stand against the advance of the church and God's kingdom. They will not, in other words, be able to stand. They stand, but they will fall. They will not prevail. They will not, what that literally says is they will not be strong against the church. As the gospel of Christ advances, the gates will come down and those held captive and subject to bondage will be released. Through the advance of the church and God's kingdom, the gates of hell that hold men captive will continue to be destroyed. So what are we doing here today? We are destroying gates. We are destroying the gates of hell that exist in our own lives. You are being prepared to go out into the world to destroy the gates of hell that hold men captive. Well, how do you do that? You do that through the love of God and the love of Christ. You do that through the gospel of Christ. You do that by loving men enough to tell them the truth. What if the truth offends them? Better they be offended with the truth and set free than never hear the truth and die in their sin. Thank you. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, what we commonly call the Great Commission. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now think about that. All authority. Remember that, remember in the scripture, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it's recorded in the gospels where Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil. 
And in that temptation, the devil comes to him three times. And one of the times the devil comes to him, he takes him up on a high mountain. And the Bible says that Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, Jesus, if you will only bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus just simply responded with the scripture, you shall have no other God. Only God shall you worship. Jesus basically said, no thanks. Why? Because Jesus knew that day would come when he would say to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Guess what happened to all those kingdoms that Satan offered to Jesus? They became Jesus' kingdom. In fact, the reality is what the reality of what happened was the kingdom of God has swallowed up those kingdoms of the earth. Jesus isn't Lord over many kingdoms. He is Lord over his kingdom. And his kingdom, he is the rock that was cut out of the mountain without hands in Daniel's vision that crashes to the earth and begins to fill the earth. That's what's happening right now. Jesus is filling the earth. The knowledge of the glory of God is filling the earth. And as the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ is filling the earth, guess what's happening? The gates of hell are being destroyed. Guess what's happening? Men are being set free. So Jesus says to his disciples as he's sending them out, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, remember I always say this, know what the therefore is there for. The therefore is therefore because Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. And do what? And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. In both of these verses, we see that Jesus has given authority to his church to advance his kingdom, to storm the gates of hell, to go to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, and to assure them that he is with us always. Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. You are never in the heat of battle alone. Jesus is with you always. In your darkest hour, he is with you In your most joyful time, he is with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Now, last week I read a scripture. We're going to go back there. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Now, what are we talking about? Our worship is warfare. And why are we talking about this? Because the church must understand the importance of who we are called to be and what we are called to do. This isn't a social club. This isn't uh, a country club. This isn't a place to come and do all the things people think and the world think it's a place to come and do. This is an equipping place. This is a place to equip you to go back out into the world and conduct the warfare that God says we are to wage. We are the church that is to go and destroy the gates of hell to set men free by the power of the gospel. 
This is why our worship is warfare. We're doing that very thing right now. Now let's read Luke chapter 2. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10, verses 2 through 3. Now this is when Jesus is, Jesus is sending out the 70. Jesus said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now when we talk about fields and harvest, what comes to mind? Farmers, farming. We live in a we live in an area of Texas, Central Texas. It's an agriculture area. This community was built on agriculture. Cotton was king. This was one of the greatest producers of cotton in the world in its heyday, and it's still a great producer of agricultural products. So Jesus, when he tells them the harvest is great. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. This is farm talk. This is a farmer talking. Hey, I need some laborers to go out and bring in my harvest. But then he also says this, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now, what did Jesus, what did we just read? As Jesus commissions his disciples, he says, go in my authority and make disciples of the nations. What did we read in Matthew 16? Jesus said, all authority, I give authority to you, I give you the keys of the kingdom. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's, it's a picture of warfare. It's a picture of a fortified city and he's sending out his disciples and he says, go storm those gates. Those gates will not prevail against you. So we see that Jesus in his, in his teaching as he is discipling these disciples, that's what he was doing. They were his disciples. As he's discipling them, he's teaching them to understand who they are, how they are to identify so he paints a picture of warfare. So when we talk about warfare and we go to war, what are we called? We're called warriors. When we talk about fields and harvest and we go out, what are we? What are we? We're farmers. So we see that Jesus is picturing here farmers and warriors. Or we could say warrior farmers. We're called laborers in the harvest. Christ sends us out into the world as laborers to bring in his harvest. And when God sent Israel into the land of promise, he commanded them to take that land, to take that ground, to sow seed, to harvest the fruit. They were to go in and take dominion. This is not just the talk of farmers. This is the talk of warriors. Go into that land and take dominion. That's what God commanded Israel to do. And when we read in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Joshua, you see where God, they go into that land. Joshua takes them in and they are conquering those tribes and taking cities and taking ground. They are taking dominion over the land of promise. So Israel pictures 
what Christ has commanded us to do in the world. The kingdom of God advances as we go in and gather the harvest, as we sow the seed of God's word in the ground of men's hearts for the increase of his fruit and of his glory. God presents us both as laborers in the harvest and men of war for his kingdom. That is what Israel was throughout their history. They were warrior farmers. We see in Nehemiah and Ezra when they're building the the city back up after the Babylonian captivity. There's a picture during that building, uh, when they're building the wall where, where it says that they held a weapon in one hand and they held a trowel in another hand because they were ready for the attack of the enemy, but they were building. They were builders and they were warriors. They were warrior builders. So we see this throughout Israel's history. And Israel is picturing what the church ultimately is to become because the church now is the people of... We are the people of God. What are we made up of? We are made up of Jew and Gentile. We're made up of slave and free. We're made up of rich and poor, male and female. And in fact, we have destroyed those labels of identification and segregation. And the Bible says now in Christ we are one new man. And that middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been demolished. Ephesians 2, go read it. So God's people, the church, have become much more than just farmers and builders. Now, all believers, this is what the scripture says, all believers are now called a royal priesthood. Peter writes this. We're called lambs and laborers. We're called salt and light. We're called kings and priests. This is how God describes his army. This is who we are. We are his people wielding his powerful weapons of spiritual warfare that are made mighty through God. We are engaged in a war. We're engaged in a war in every sense of the word. There's wars taking place all over planet earth right now. There's wars, wars of words taking place in our own nation right now. There's tension, there's conflict, there's opposition, there's forces opposing one another. The warfare is real in every sense of the word. But I want you to understand that the spiritual warfare that we engage in is more deadly than any natural warfare. You go fight a natural war, there are men that will lose their physical lives in war. And as tragic as that is, let me tell you what is more tragic than losing your physical life. What's more tragic is dying the second death. Where you are eternally dead to God. That you are eternally separated from God. That is the consequence. That, those are the stakes of the spiritual war. The spiritual battles that we wage. greatest weapon of the enemy is his use of deception this war this battle is raging whether people believe it or not and there's a lot of people that don't believe it there's a lot of Christians 
who come to church every week and don't think one thing about the reality of spiritual warfare, the reality that there is an enemy out there. They don't think one thing about the reality that Jesus commands us to storm the gates of hell and destroy them so that men can be set free from the deception. And this deception is the greatest weapon of the enemy to convince us there is no spiritual battle, to convince us better than that even, there is no God, there is no such thing as a spirit. And it doesn't matter whether men believe that or not in terms of the reality of the situation. All men will believe one day that God is. All men will know one day that God is the creator, that Jesus is the only Savior. All men will know that one day. But not all men will be carried into eternity in the presence of the Lord. But all men will know this truth and this reality. The effects of this spiritual warfare manifest all around us. We live in and we witness the reality of warfare and death each day. One day, one day we will, the Bible in the book of Revelation pictures this called the great white throne judgment where we will see the judgment of the wicked one day, but we will not participate. The judgment of the wicked will not fall on us. If we are in Christ, we have escaped the judgment for sin. Why? Because in Christ, God has placed our sin and the judgment for our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are trusting in Jesus, it doesn't matter how bad your life was. It doesn't matter how sinful you think and how far gone you think you are. If you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. If you are in Christ, you have been made clean as white as snow. If you are in Christ, you will witness the judgment of the wicked one day, but you will not experience the judgment of the, the wicked one day because tr Christ took in himself God's wrath for all who trust in him. So my plea is that you trust in Christ and escape the judgment that will fall on the wicked one day. God has given us powerful weapons in the spirit to engage in our warfare against the enemy. He has delivered us from the fear of death by destroying the devil who had power over death. Now Christ has power over death. Death touched Jesus. Jesus lived and Jesus died. Death touched Jesus, but death could not hold Jesus. Death will touch you but death cannot hold you if you are in Jesus. In Christ, we have been given victory over death through his resurrection life. We have nothing to fear. In fact, it is the spiritual hosts of wickedness that should be fearful. Now, I read this scripture in Luke chapter 10. Jesus said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And, and Jesus is sending out these 70 disciples. Now, look what he says in verse 3 as he sends them out. Behold, 
He says, go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Jesus is the good shepherd. Doesn't sound like a very good shepherd, does it? Sending his sheep out among wolves. We are lambs that are to make wolves fearful. Do you hear me, church? We are called lambs, and we are sent out among wolves, but we are lambs that are to make wolves fearful. It sounds counterintuitive, but that is how the kingdom of God operates. Think about it. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. If you want to be great in the kingdom, Jesus said, become the slave of all. You want to go high? Go low. To gather the harvest and fight the battle, we go out as lambs. But we are to be lambs that are feared by wolves. Why? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What the devil wants you to do is try to learn how to fight in the flesh. Because as long as you're fighting in the flesh... As long as you're trying to do it through your strength and your willpower, you will never, ever win. I just need to buckle down and try harder. Uh, try again and fail again. And finally fail so many times that you realize, there, I, I can't do this. Bingo. You can't do this. Only God can do this. What the devil wants you to think is that you can do this. I can quit drinking. I can quit drugging. I can quit sinning. I just, I just need a little more time. Huh. Nope. That's exactly what he wants you to think. And he'll give you just enough victory to keep you thinking that you can do it. But you'll never, ever achieve victory. The devil will let you win. He'll let you win sometimes. It's the same thing thing the lottery does you know you buy that scratch off buy ten dollars worth of tickets man i won five dollars i'm i'm gonna go i'm gonna go buy twenty dollars worth i i really feel lucky i think i'm gonna win the big one what'd you do you spent ten dollars and you you won five that's a net loss of five dollars but you thought you won <laughs> how do you think that thing gets up to hundreds of millions of dollars because you can't win. They win. That is exactly what the devil does to you. He gives you just enough winnings to keep you feeding that death machine. Thinking that you're going you're gonna to win. But you're never going to win. And he'll give you just enough victory to keep you working in your own strength, your own power, your own will. And the best thing God could ever do for you Here's grace. God, intervene in your life and let you crash and burn to the point that you are absolutely, completely hopeless. And you have no resources within yourself. You have nothing within yourself in which you can trust and rely on. And you have nothing left but God. That is grace. Now, it may not feel like grace. It may not look like grace. You might not you might be thinking right now, Pastor, if that's grace, I don't want it. But I promise you, you want it. Because one day, we will all witness the judgment of the wicked, and you don't want to be under that judgment. You want to be with Christ, witnessing what you deserved.
but did not receive because of his grace. So in Christ, we become armed and dangerous to the powers and the principalities, the rulers of the darkness of this age. But how effective we are depends on how faithful we are to actively and obedient engage in worship and warfare and the harvest. God does not send his people to war alone. God calls his people together for worship and for battle. Israel was always called to worship before she was called to war. You read this in the Old Testament where this is how Saul got in trouble. They're getting ready to go fight the Philistines. And Samuel was coming to offer worship to the Lord. And Saul's out there with his army. He's going, man, where is Samuel? Man, I got an army ready to go here. These guys are chomping at the bits. Have you guys seen the prophet yet? No, we don't see him. This is ridiculous. Where is that guy? Look, God won't mind. God told us to go fight these guys. Look, let's just, off, let's just do it ourselves. Let's just, let's, just, let's just worship how we think it should be. There was a prescribed way. There was a method to the madness, and Saul takes it upon himself to do what it was not his to do. And that's when he lost his kingdom. That was the death spiral began. And that act of disobedience led to other acts of disobedience and God tore the kingdom from Saul and what did Samuel say to Saul that day when Samuel finally showed up and he saw that Saul had offered the sacrifice and Saul what have you done well you weren't here so I I I did it and Samuel said to Saul Saul you need to remember this to obey is better than sacrifice to obey is better than sacrifice The Lord never sent Israel into battle separately, but he always sent them as an assembly. Number six, 32, 6 and 7, Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? How will you? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? God called all the nation. He called one body to go together when God called his people together for war or for worship they were to assemble together as one they were to conduct worship and warfare together so today we worship together and through our worship we do warfare together in the spirit in the power and the might of his spirit and we become lambs that are feared by wolves listen it doesn't matter that you're a lamb and the devil is a roaring lion when the devil understands that you know who you are in Christ it doesn't matter that you're a lamb and he's a lion he is deathly afraid of the child of God who comes to understand who they are in Christ and what has been given to them in Christ that the weapons of their warfare are not of their flesh not of the weakness of their flesh, but are mighty through God.
to pull down strongholds. The Lord commands his church to not forsake assembling together. We are to faithfully assemble, to faithfully worship God, and to faithfully wage war against the rulers of the darkness as we see the day approaching. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews pens in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This verse presents three very important commands for us. First is a command to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering, don't lose hope. There is always hope in Christ, regardless of what it may look like around you. We do this because God who promised is faithful. Second is a command for us to consider one another. A worshiper and a warrior must always consider others, not just themselves. We are to consider one another. We are to assemble each week in consideration of one another. So we talked about this in our Sunday school lesson. Consumerism in the church is a product of something that happened in history over 300 years ago. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, some of the things that the church have been empowered to do, but it can be a bad thing when we begin to think of worship and church in a consumer mentality. If your only thought is what you're going to get out of a service any given week, you've missed a major portion of why we are assembled together. Look what it says. Consider one another. It doesn't say consider yourself first. It says consider one another. That You're included in that, but you're not the only one in that. One of your greatest considerations when you're thinking about coming here on Sunday is one another. How can I be an encouragement? How can I be a help? How can I love? How can I make those around me feel more welcome, more encouraged, whatever it may be. Let us consider one another to provoke each other to love and good works. The third one is this. It's a command to assemble together. We can't do those things without assembling. We can't encourage one another. We can't provoke one another if we're not together with one another. Therefore, do not forsake assembling yourselves together. An army that does not fight as one man cannot fight effectively. We are the army of the Lord. We are commanded to assemble together for spiritual worship and for spiritual warfare. And the most powerful way we worship and war is through our assembling together as a corporate body. Now, it may not seem powerful to you because in America we are so tied to our emotions. If we don't feel it, it's not real. But the reality is God says it's real whether you feel it or not. It's real whether you believe it or not. And the, the thing the enemy would love most is for Christians to believe that, that I am wasting my time. There's nothing good, there's nothing powerful, there's nothing important that happens in coming to church. I'd be better off staying home reading my Bible. No. 
That's like an army. That's like a soldier saying, there's nothing important about me assembling with the, the army to go fight this war. I'm just going to stay here and clean my gun, get it ready. For what? What are you getting ready for? You, you're not assembling with the army. The enemy, this is his deception. He doesn't want you to think there's anything powerful happening. Baby's crying. All I hear are babies crying. Those babies, according to the Bible, are conducting spiritual warfare, and they are stilling the enemy and the avenger. What are you doing? You're moaning and complaining. No, there is something powerful. God says there is something powerful when we come together. There is worship and our worship is warfare. We are disrupting the heavenlies. We are declaring the powers and the principalities to the rulers of the darkness of this age that the church is here, that Jesus is building his church, and we know what the promise of Jesus is. This is, this is our confession. Look at this, church. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Part of our confession of hope is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, I lost my job. That's okay. We're going to pray and believe for a new one. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Don't lose your confession of hope. Don't forsake it. Because God, who is faithful, has promised. And our worship together is conducting warfare in the heavenlies. And when we abandon that, we are abandoning something powerful. And this warfare is not just for you. This warfare is for you, but it's also for these children. And it's also for the children of these children. We, this is the problem in America. We've lost the long view. The church is all about, what can you do for me today? Oh, not too much. Okay, well, I'm out of here. And yet, get on Facebook and see people complain. I won't use the word, but... They do it along with moaning about the situations and the circumstances. And they're railing in anger against anyone and everyone you can imagine. But if you were to ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What church do you belong to? Oh, I don't go to church. You know, church is full of hypocrites. This is the problem we have lost because we've bought the lie of the enemy. We've lost the power because we've lost our understanding and our knowledge of who we are called to be and what we are called to do. You come here every week. You should come here with the expectation, with the knowledge that you're saying the Apostles' Creed, you're singing the songs, you're saying the prayers, you're reading the bulletin, you're hearing the sermon, you're reading along in the scriptures. All of that is spiritual warfare conducted in the heavenlies, and it is powerful. The enemy does not want you to believe that, but God says it is. And it's why he commands us to assemble. Because why? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. You notice that's what the Bible says. Now, if you ask the world why Jesus came... I guarantee you, 99.9% .9 of the people in the world would not give you that answer. Why did Jesus came? Well, he came because he loves uh, poor people. 
He came to feed the poor. He fed the 5,000. He came, they'll give you every answer you can imagine, but they won't give you that answer. But this is what the Bible says. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And he has given to the church the authority to storm the gates of hell and crash them down because through that warfare, men are set free. And that warfare is being conducted. What led to your salvation? What led to you? I don't know how I came to faith in Christ. I mean, I know how I came to faith in Christ, but I have no clue what took place in the years and decades preceding that in my life, in the life of my, my grandmother, my mom, my aunts. I, I don't know. What prayers, what happened spiritually, what warfare was conducted in worship services my grandmother was a godly woman. She probably prayed for me when, she didn't even, when I didn't even exist. And it could have been those prayers offered in a worship service almost 100 years ago that led to my ultimate salvation because our worship and our warfare is real and it is powerful. The writer of Hebrews says, and so much more as you see the day approaching. There is a day approaching. We assemble each week as an army of worshipers, and through worship we go into battle, and we conduct our warfare against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Worship prepares the way for us to go into the battleground of his harvest, and when the church fails to worship, we fail to wage war against our enemies that are consistently waging war against us. When we worship as God commands, we are an unstoppable force for his kingdom. I believe that. We are in a war that has already been won, but our warfare will continue until Jesus returns. Then he will put the last enemy, death, under his feet. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul concerning this war and its end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24 through 26. Then comes the end when he, when Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In other words, the warfare will continue, the battle will continue until the last enemy is put underfoot. And Jesus himself will come and put that enemy underfoot. Well, when will we know that day has come? We'll know it when death is no more. Until then, we continue to wage war. And the most powerful way we do that is through our worship together as one body. This is why we must know that our worship is warfare. Amen. So I want you to get ready to come to the Lord's table. This is a table of worship. A table of worship in the presence of our enemies. I prepare for you a table in the presence of your enemies, Psalm 23 says. That's what this table is. It's a table prepared in the presence of our enemies. Therefore, it's a table of war. So we've come to this table as worshipers and as warriors. From the youngest to the oldest, 
So those little babies that God's ordained strength out of their mouth, they're welcome to this table because they're warriors, because God says, I've given them weapons to wage war in the, spirit, in the heavenlies. So they're as much warriors as we are, even though they have no clue what they're doing. The Bible says they're waging war. From the strength that God ordains out of the mouth of the very youngest to the glory of the gray, hoary head of the oldest among us, we declare his victory as we feast at this table, and that's exactly what we do. We declare his victory as we feast at this table. So, church, Christian, as you trust in Jesus, come to this table. I'm going to give you your charge. I'm going to pray for the meal, and then we're going to go next door and have lunch together. Let's all stand. So my charge is that we obey his commands and that we conduct our worship and our warfare well. Our life is our daily worship and our daily warfare. We live, we walk, we live our lives, we walk out our lives by his grace in concert with the Holy Spirit that is working in us. So I encourage you to reflect on your spiritual life that we consider our walk of faith and the power present in a lifestyle of obedience and worship before the Lord. I want us to consider the power of our worship, the power it has in us, the power it has among us, and the power it has in the spiritual realm of God's kingdom. I want to challenge you to consider that your coming here to assemble with the body for worship is more than what you personally get from it. Our assembling is as much about what you are giving to those around you in your presence as well as in your acts of worship. It is most importantly what you are giving to the Lord. It's an indication of your heart given in surrender to Him. I pray we would begin to know and feel the power of the Holy Spirit working through our worship, working through us, that we realize the power of the warfare we wage daily in our life and weekly in our assembly for worship. That power is to be known and witnessed inside and outside the four walls of this building. Most importantly, it is to be known, seen, and realized and manifest in you. I charge you to consider the impact God would make through your life. We are his body, the church, and he is to be known in us as he is manifest through us. God is working in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That is the promise of Philippians chapter 2. And he does all of this for his glory. Amen. Father, I ask that you would bless the food next door as we get ready to go next door and, and fellowship together, break bread together. What a gift that is. What a powerful witness that is to men on earth and to demons in the heavenlies. Father, let the funds that are received bless our missionaries and the work they do on the mission field. Continue the advance of your kingdom storm and abolish the gates of hell that men would be set free to know you, to worship you and so continue the advance of your kingdom 
Father, for this and for all your blessings, we give you thanks.